Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 332 of Tick Bootcamp Podcast. The title of today's episode is Enlightened Wellness, and I'm so incredibly excited and honored to interview my dear friend, Christy Kuski. My name is Ashley Bellinger, and you may remember me from episode 72. Here's a couple takeaways and behind the scenes of the conversation with Christy, some things that I'm not sure I would have normally shared out loud or that are openly talked about, one being sexual transmission and congenital Lyme and how common that is and how it's not openly discussed. Another one being Christy's journey as a pediatric nurse, how that started her knowledge there, and then going from that realm to the holistic world and kind of integrating both of those pieces. And then the last part would be Christy's journey, the parallel journey, her herself as a patient, how she had to advocate for herself, as well as having a child with Lyme and how she had to advocate for her child as well. Without further ado, I'm excited to introduce to you my dear friend, Christy Kuski. Christy, can you tell us a little bit of your background? Where did you grow up? Um, what did you do? You know, kind of what led you to where you are now? I grew up in a small town in Minnesota. Um, I have a great family, supportive family, which has been incredible with this journey. Um, then I went to college to become a nurse because I've always felt the need to help and heal people. Um, then I worked as a pediatric nurse for a while and then ended up in the emergency room as a nurse and then became had some symptoms that were concerning and actually didn't find out I had Lyme until my daughter tested positive for Lyme. Um, and then I was a stay at home mom for a while and then just opened up my own practice a year ago to help people um, with preventative care, preconception care, and obviously some Lyme symptoms go with all of that and figuring out um, journeys that way. Um, people's journeys that way, excuse me. So prior to your daughter getting diagnosed, did you know a whole lot about Lyme? Like what was your, you know, background or knowledge of Lyme disease or, oh. you know, in the area you grew up in, was it well known? Oh, well here in the Midwest, yes, ticks are very well known, but as an ER nurse, we would just have them come in, have the bullseye, send them home with two weeks of antibiotics and be on your way. Um, I will say I did have symptoms of Lyme in 2016. I had my daughter in 2018. Um, I did go to a Lyme literate doctor. And of course, my labs came up negative for Lyme, but I was having all the symptoms um, two years prior to having Penelope. Um, and then I did a lot of work because they said I'd never be able to get pregnant um, due to some of my hormone levels as well as I would miscarry a lot, but I did a lot of foundational work, um, not as much as I've done since uh, the diagnosis of Lyme. Um, but yeah, so it's been quite a journey. Wasn't easy or straightforward, which I don't feel <laughs> most Lyme uh, stories or journeys are. You had mentioned um, symptoms, you know, prior to Penelope being born, but then more after. Did you notice can you kind of share that journey before her birth and then after, did it flare after giving birth? Was there any correlation that you noticed there, you know, prior, <clears throat> excuse me, to your official diagnosis? Um, so in 2016, I 
um, had the worst panic attack I've ever had. I chose to fly home early from my girl's trip and started, started having really bad anxiety with flying. And I've traveled all over the world. I helped in Africa with pediatric surgeries. I've gone to Mexico for pediatric surgeries, and then I've just traveled for fun like once a month. So this was very out of the norm for me to have panic and anxiety with, with flying. And then I was just exhausted, but then I couldn't sleep. So the fight or flight, my nervous system, like what is going on? So luckily I found that naturopath that was Lyme literate. Um, and we did some foundation works and herbs. Then I was able to get pregnant, had Penelope. And I thought it was just having a baby postpartum. I don't know. I've never had a baby. So I was exhausted, had to nap when she napped cognitively, like the brain fog. I'm like, Oh no, this just, I'm just, I have a lot going on. I'm not sleeping well. It's probably that. And then once she had a reoccurrent fever once a month for like seven months, And luckily we have an amazing pediatrician that ordered all of those labs and she did come up positive. Um, I said, you know, maybe we should, I went in and she was like, maybe we should check you. (laughs) Sure enough, I had it. She most likely got it in utero and those, what the symptoms I were having and not to dismiss postpartum symptoms because those I'm sure were intertwined, but this was much more than that. So I, I wish looking back, someone would have said, Hey, maybe we should look at some other avenues than just this postpartum brain fog, tiredness, unable to do daily tasks. So then after that, do you remember which test Penelope was given and which test you were given? I, I know this is terrible, but I do not, I do not. Um, I don't remember. Cause I would be curious if she was given the Eliza or the Western blot if because she was so much younger, if she would have gotten a positive on there versus, you know, you and I, because we've had it for so much longer. I feel like, I don't feel like it was the Western blot intuitively. I don't feel like that. So, and usually my intuition is correct. So, so guys, I, I have to, I have to step in here because I'm sweating. I'm literally anxious with the story already. I mean, like when you see the train coming down the tracks, it causes me to be so anxious. So let me let me let me ask you this as as a nurse first, right? Yeah. Um, we one of the things we have here at Tick Boot Camp is we we've created a whole bunch of frameworks, and one of the frameworks that we that we that we have here is the Lyme Risk Framework, and it's just largely based on on the work of Stanley McChrystal, who defines risk as threat times vulnerability, right? And uh, we always focus on Lyme disease as a threat and an increasing threat based on the number of ticks and the likelihood of being bitten by a tick. What we don't focus on are some of the other ways that you can get Lyme disease. And we've learned from Phyllis Bedford, for example, at the Limelight Foundation, that over 50% of the people who have applied for Limelight grants um, have been infected by Lyme in utero, that it is that it is a congenital disease. So I'm wondering yep. first, as a nurse... Um, and I was teasing you offline that you have more letters after your name than you have before your name. So someone who loves learning and loves learning about medicine and helping others, were you aware that it was possible that no. um, if you had Lyme disease, you could pass it on to your children? Never. Nope. Had no idea. 
So another one of the things that we've learned on our podcast, because most of the people we've interviewed have been female, is that the number one thing they fear after getting their Lyme disease diagnosis is whether or not they can have children at all and what impact it would have on their children. So when you were going through the early stages of your journey, where you were, where you were feeling like you may have Lyme disease and you were being tested by, by doctors for Lyme disease, did you fear that perhaps you would not be able to have children and or that you you might be passing this disease on to your unborn children? I had no idea I could pass it on to Penelope, no. Right. So now let's talk about this Lyme literate naturopath that you were working with, right? And you you were very complimentary of this naturopathic doctor, and I don't want to sort of rain on that parade, but did the naturopathic doctor say to you, hey, Christy, you know, if you have Lyme disease, there are some steps that we, you know, we may want to take, even though you haven't tested positive because these tests kind of suck, um, you know, that, 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 you know, maybe, maybe you'd want to do some work to make sure that you, you know, that you would, uh, you know, be as healthy as you could be and perhaps not pass these microbes on to your unborn child. Yeah, she did not tell me that. No. I want to talk to you about two other ways that, that you can get Lyme disease, and then we'll sort of move forward with your story. And that is, so we, we know you can get bitten by a tick. We know you can you can receive it in utero from your mom. Uh, let's talk about sexual transmission. Yeah. Are, are you are you aware that uh, that in 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 some of the research uh, that Lyme disease can be passed on through sexual transmission? Yes, and my husband did all of it too, all of the work. So I'm very grateful he was on board. <laughs> what about blood transfusions? Right, because one of the things we we now know. Um, yeah. Is that at least here in New York, the you know the 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 blood centers are actually putting us through uh, a questionnaire where if we've had a diagnosis of Lyme disease or one of the co-infections that we cannot donate blood. Um, is that something that you were ever trained about during you know during the course of your various um, you know educational uh, and or in-service trainings uh, as a nurse? No, but I am glad that they are asking that. I wonder if they are here in Minnesota. I should check on that. All right. Well, hopefully you and Ashley can bring that to the folks who are collecting blood in Minnesota to make sure that they are asking those kinds of questions as well. So we now know that there are at least four different ways that you can get Lyme disease, right? You can get it when you're bitten by a tick, which is the most likely way that you'll get Lyme disease. You can get it in utero. You can get it uh, through a blood transfusion and you can get it through sexual uh, unfortunately, now what we're finding is that we don't just have a growth curve for Lyme disease. You know, we have an exponential growth curve, right? Like the number of people who are getting diagnosed with Lyme disease is going through the roof. Uh, and that's another thing so that brings the two of you together, right? Which is you're both now offering to the community different services based on your background and your expertise and your journeys with Lyme disease. So talk about how that has come together with the two of you. And then I'll shut up and let Ashley take you through more of your journey. So with the practice I opened, which is called Enlightened Integrative Wellness, I have learned how to muscle test applied kinesiology, and I became a functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner as well as a mind-body-spirit release practitioner. Um, and what I look at is I can muscle test and see exactly where in the body this Lyme and co-infections may be hanging out. I cannot diagnose, but I can suggest that this is where it might be happening. Um, I actually had a woman come in delightful, had all of these symptoms, didn't, 
I don't read their background because I don't want to put that into my energy fields. I look at it after we're done. Um, her levels for lead were out of this world in her liver. And I'm like, I have never seen someone so high. And she said, I used to work at a gun shop and I wouldn't wash my hands before eating lunch. And I'm like, oh, and then she did test positive for Lyme and some co-infections. I believe that's off the top of my head. She brought that into her doctor and tested for everything. And I was correct with everything. Every, she was blown away how accurate this muscle testing was because I know in the Western culture, it can be frowned upon. It's pseudoscience. It's not correct. Um, but just to have that affirmation that it, it does, and it can, it can be helpful to others. Um, especially if those labs, as we know, aren't very accurate. So why don't we find other avenues to try to help treat that? And then with that, I am very strong opinionated about, strongly opinionated about, excuse me, um, the correlation of your emotions and Lyme and co-infections. Um, you can read The Body Keeps Sto Score. Um, Dr. Joe Despazia has great, just great information about your mind, body, spirit, and how it's all connected. And if we're not treating this on an emotional level, I tell my clients, you're going to just come back here in a year because you are not resolving the trauma, the unresolved trauma and emotions. And we know that these you're in your fascia can be these emotions just hanging out. Well, what else can be stored in our body? As we know, Lyme co-infections, and they're just parasites. They're just hanging out with all of that, those emotions. Um, so that is a piece of my practice that I feel, and, and with my own journey, I guess I should say, um, my father was killed by a distracted driver almost two years ago. He was on Facebook and my dad was on his way to have lunch with my daughter and I, she was almost three at the time. Um, and this was right at the beginning of, or like a year into actually my Lyme journey. And I if I hadn't done those emotional pieces already, I, I don't think I would be where I am today. So just tying in, you know, grief is really an important thing to look at. We all, we all have experienced grief in our life. Um, and that can be a great piece to look into as well to help your healing journey. Um, and then if we really want to get, <laughs> I love this stuff. So um, grief is actually held in our lungs. So people with chronic pneumonia, bronchitis, things like that. Um, let's, let's look at some other avenues of healing that. Thank you for sharing the grief journey so openly and vulnerably online, because I feel like that's a component or an area that's not, you know, talked about enough or the emotional aspect of how that ties in. And that is so deeply rooted in everything. Um, I think that's really important to share and I appreciate how you're so open about it and you share the, you know, the good and the bad and it's so raw and so relatable. I don't think that many people feel comfortable enough to do that. So oh. thank you. I appreciate you. Thanks. Yeah. It's not an easy journey to be on. And it definitely, I think in our society, unfortunately, it's, <laughs> your dad died in 2021. It's 2022, Christy, like let's move along. And it's like, no, that's not how 
that works. It's going to be with me forever. It's going to be a journey forever. And that's okay. But I need to be able to adapt. And it's okay to not be okay sometimes as well. And just making space for that and having a support system that knows that and that I'm very grateful for you for checking up. So (laughs) um, with all that, with the grief portion, you had mentioned it, you know, happened in the middle of treatment. Can you kind of go back a little bit for us and share with people? So you got your diagnosis, Penelope got hers. Can you share the, you know, course of treatments that you tried? Was it multiple? What order did you go in? A little bit of background for those that may not know your journey. I am now drawing a blank, but you're going to help me out, Ashley. Um, Stephen, he wrote a book on herbs. I have it upstairs. Stephen Buner. Yes, thank you. Um, sometimes <laughs> that cognitive lime is still there, still there. We are working on that. Um, I did his, so I went, ready, Richard? I went back to that Lyme literate doctor and said, you were right. You're right. I did have it. So we started on herbs for, I think we tried them for, yes, a year. Penelope and I both did them um, with some foundational support. And what I mean by foundational support would be castor oil packs, um, Epsom salt baths, work, you know, working out, moving that lymphatic system, but nothing compared to, which I will get to, um, what I did in the last two years. So I tried that and it just, it didn't, I'm a very intuitive person. Um, I think after having kids, I think there's something (laughs) sparked in women that, that when they say mama bear and that mother intuition, they are not lying. I was like, this just doesn't, feel like it's doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing. And that's okay because everyone's a bioinvigual, right? Some, the herbs sometimes help for people. Sometimes it doesn't. So then I went online to this Facebook crunchy group and I just typed in Lyme and Dr. There was Lyme stop, which I know Ashley's done. And then there was Dr. Irestone here in Burnsville, Minnesota. And I made appointments for both made the down payment for Limestop, went into Irestone and I said, Hey, I have an appointment with Limestop next week. Like just, and he is very straightforward, man. <laughs> just, we'll tell you how it is. He should probably live in New York. Um, he said, you know, to be honest, you can try it. I'm not, you do whatever you feel is right for you. However, I see patients that, that have gone and done Limestop come back to me. And I was like, okay, that's enough for me. I'm just going to treat with you and have my daughter be treated by you. And so we use Despio homeopathy with him. Um, and that has been Penelope is actually still treating. She's going on two years. So I think mine was like 18 months. Um, and that really incredibly changed our lives. Both of us. Um, and once you start going down that rabbit hole with the, cause I had a lot of co-infections. Um, one of them was EBV. So once you start treating that EBV with the desk bio, it's, it's different for everyone, which vial, um, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar, but it's 
10 vials, one through 10, and then you go down 10 to one. Well, the first like vial four through seven, you can get pretty bad side effects. And I remember with EBV, which in case you don't know is, is mono. Um, I was exhausted. I could barely get off the couch and Ashley has been using Despio as well. And she went to see Dr. Irestone. So everyone she treats, she goes, do you remember how you felt? Do you remember, do you remember what vial it was? What do I need to expect? Which one was that one with the sore throat, Ashley? Do you remember? Was it EBV? Was it? No, I think there was another one. Anyways, um, but just being aware that those symptoms then can flare up with that treatment with Despio. So it is, it's not a walk in the park. It is, it is challenging, um, especially as, as a mama trying to take care of a little one who is also now experiencing these same side effects with, with treatment. Um, and Penelope's, a lot of hers has been behavioral, just like zero to a hundred. And I can't blame it on like my father's passing down his Irish temper. Um, it's, it's just, you can tell the neurological and the swelling in her brain. Um, so that's been wonderful to see that taper down as well, because just seeing your kid sick and miserable is, is so hard, but I'm so blessed that we were able to find Irestone at such such a young age for her, because I know there's tons of, um, children out there that have these symptoms and just kind of are pushed away. And that leads me to, as a pediatric nurse, I've always told my, my new, my new nurses coming in when I would train them, the mom is always right. Like you listen to that mom. If she is saying something is wrong, something is wrong. And I would just see it so often of like, oh, they're fine. Or, oh, it's just this, or here's a prescription. And just that sick care cycle of not finding the root cause. Um, so I'm very grateful. I get to try to help others navigate, navigate that and not just um, have them, I hate to say this, but that's <laughs> just another number or a prescription pad. I can't personally write prescriptions, but just that uh, is just heartbreaking to me how we try to fix everything just with a pill, because that is not how um, a healing journey works. So Chrissy, we do have to count blessings here though, because there are, uh, there are important things that you've just discussed with us that, you know, have been unbelievably wonderful for Penelope. Penelope. And I'm, last week I interviewed uh, Dr. Greenberg, who's one of the top uh, psychologists, I'm sorry, psychiatrists, uh, LLMDs, who's practicing in, in, in pediatric um, psychiatry. And one of the things that, you know, she reminded us when we interviewed her is that the overwhelming majority of children who have Lyme disease, who are demonstrating psychological and psychiatric um symptoms are never diagnosed with Lyme disease, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the, you know, like, I think one of the ways of looking at your story is, holy cow, poor Penelope really sucks that she was born with Lyme disease. But I think there's another way of reframing that and is, thank God, she got the diagnosis when she got the diagnosis, right? Because there are many behavioral issues that are a part of her Lyme disease journey that she would not be treated for properly if she didn't have the diagnosis. So give me a reaction to how you feel about this really being a blessing that she was diagnosed rather than her just sort of having these, you know, in many cases, an entire childhood that would be, that would be, you know, again, I don't want to say ruined, but certainly 
you know, her, her childhood experience would be very different if she had all of these, all of these, uh, you know, psychiatric and psychological uh, symptoms and was never diagnosed. Yeah, I, I am just so blessed that, oh, that her doctor was able to pinpoint and get all of the labs for her. So from what I've seen, especially on social media, is that these kids, yeah, are seven, eight, nine, ten, have have experienced, you know, all of these dysregulation, anger, you know, those things that cognitively aren't doing great in school. And if we just did this test at our pediatric, you know, their pediatrician office, routinely, can you imagine how many kids would be able to succeed in the classroom or just socially? Um, and for her, I've definitely seen a turn of with that dysregulation, she's able to calm her body down faster than it was. I mean, it would be 30 minutes of her screaming, like her brain was on fire. So I am just so blessed. And I hope that um, with this podcast, mamas, you can, or dads, um, but usually it's the moms, let's be honest, taking them to the, to the pediatrician. Um, at least in my experience, is that this can... And in mine, I mean, I'm a dad, I have four children. And, you know, quite frankly, you know, moms have different sets of tools. And, you know, we, 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 like, to, we like to be in this parent neutral, gender neutral, you know, world, which quite frankly, is just not real. I can tell you, at least in our experience, we have thousands of thousands of people reaching out to us about their children having Lyme disease. And it's almost universally moms. We've done hundreds of, of Zoom calls with people who have asked us to just give us give give our thoughts on, you know, what what might be available to them. Almost always moms. I can only think of one dad that ever reached out to us, and it was actually that and a mom. So I, I think we have to be real about what, you know, what we're seeing here. And it's largely moms who are dealing with the issues um, with uh, with pediatric Lyme disease. So it's OK to say it. Let's be real. And. I would, I don't know if you saw this recent study, because remember I'm a nerd. Um, they tested a mother and they still, 18 years later, still had the child's cells inside of them. Well, no wonder why we're so intuitive with our kids. We literally still have them inside our bodies. Like, of course it's intertwined. Oh, that was just, I'm like this, yes hello like we know um but yeah so i am just blessed because now with school hopefully you know she can excel she there are still a few things we do take her to cranial sacral and chiropractor because she actually had a very traumatic birth as well on top of her lyme diagnosis so she has some things there too that we just have to work through it is a whole body um approach. But so Chrissy, let me give you another piece of this, because, you know, one of the things that was, you know, what literally made me cry it during my last interview with uh, Dr. Greenberg, my co-host, was Debbie Kimberg. And Debbie Kimberg's uh, child was suffering from autism. They believed that he was going to be living a life in a group home. That's where they thought his future was going to be. Because of the great work that a brilliant mom, a loving mom did in learning about Lyme disease, she's going to be publishing a book very soon. I'm actually previewing the book right now. Um, this, this young man has actually gone from being in a special ed program to being in regular ed. He has yep. now just taken his college entrance exams and he's starting college next year. 
That's so amazing. That's yeah. that's how far along this child had come. And again, in the spirit of counting our blessings, because Penelope had an early diagnosis, she's not going to have to go through this pans, pandas, autism, spectrum uh, experience because she's getting treatment now. And there are so many children who are, you know, who are unfortunately um, having these very difficult challenges with all kinds of disease, which may or may not be connected to Lyme disease, but I just want to, you know, sort of carve out those children who are suffering from Lyme disease, but not being diagnosed because they're being diagnosed with ADD or ADHD or PANS or PANDAS or, or, or autism, when in fact, there is a, you know, there is a, um, a biological reason why these children are presenting the way they are. And if we use Debbie Kinberg and her beautiful story as a model, because she was such a vigilant mom and because she worked so hard and because she was able to, um, you know, to locate the resources, her child is now going to be living a full life rather than living in an institutional setting. And that's just, you know, a, a, a beautiful story, but I think it's also really a powerful blessing that we have to focus on for you with Penelope getting an early diagnosis rather than, rather than having all these presentations and trying to figure it out on the back end. Yes. I am forever grateful for that. Um, I truly do believe God has a plan in it all. And with that, I, have now been able to open up my own practice to help others um, and their kids. So, so let's revisit the grief cycle for a, for a bit. And, and I'd, I'd really like both of you to weigh in on this because you really, I think, very powerfully talked about grief here. Um, and uh, we, we, we I, I think there's two different ways of looking at grief. Right? We, we know about the grief cycle, right? Where we have our denial and then we have our anger and then we have our... Uh, what is it? It's denial, anger. Third step is um, is sadness. Then it's uh, then it's bargaining. Then it's acceptance. Right now, one of two things we see in this podcast happens when people enter into the grief cycle. Right, either it's a cycle and they cycle out and they and they and they uh, create something new, or it actually becomes a grief carousel. They just stay in grief all the time. Right. And so they, it's denial, it's anger, it's sadness, it's bargaining, it's acceptance. And then it's you're back to denial, anger, bargaining, sadness, and you're just cycling and cycling. So it's really not a cycle. It's a carousel. Right. That's the first thing I, that I, that I want to share with the two of you and get your reaction to. But there's a second thing is um, several of our guests have shared with us that uh, that there are several times that you grieve on a Lyme disease journey. You grieve when you come into the community. Right, you're grieving the loss of your your health, so you you go through grieving when you when you get your diagnosis, or maybe when you get here. Then then um, then you're grieving when you're going through all of the treatment that you have to go through and all the sacrifices that you have to make to go uh, through the treatment. And then you grieve when you leave the community because there is this identity that you take on as somebody who's either you know somebody who has Lyme disease or somebody who's in the process of overcoming Lyme disease and becomes an identity, and you have to grieve out. So talk to us about your journeys separately. I'd like Ashley to weigh in it as well. How important was grief in your journey, both from the standpoint of, you know, the illness, the diagnosis, the treatment, and ultimately when you when you were on the other side of the treatment journey, did you have to grieve in and out? And then we'll talk a little bit more, uh, Chrissy, I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about outside grief and the impact that has on your your immune system and how you have to manage that 
piece of it when um, when you're treating. So actually, maybe you can start with sharing with us what role grief played, and did you have to cycle in and out several times? Um, and uh, did you have to get through the grief cycle before you could begin treatment the way uh, the way Chrissy was just describing? For me, I guess at the time, uh, so this brings me, I have a confession to Christy. I don't know if I ever told you this, but when you made your down payment to LimeStop, and this kind of goes into grief too and awareness, and then you didn't go. So at the time I did LimeStop, especially when I was on the podcast, I thought I was at like 85, 90%. I was not. Um, and then, you know, Christy and I reconnected. She made her down payment. I was all excited because I saw how far I came with LimeStop. And then when she told me, when you told me you weren't going to go internally, I was crushed. I was like, oh, but it helped me so much. Like, I know it can help you. But then looking back, then when you went to Ironstone, you going there and you having so much faith and like, this is what I need to do. Then I started going to Ironstone. It was like a whole aha of Limestop wasn't wrong for me. You know, it doesn't mean it was right or wrong for you. But then it helped me see like, okay, there's more for me to treat. So for me, it was, that's kind of part of my grief cycle is I did LimeStop. I was so heavily invested. It helped me. It saved my life. But then I had to realize that I still had lingering symptoms. And when I went to Dr. Irestone, um, I'm currently treating, what is it? Cytomegravirus and C. diff. And he's found nine additional infections. And so for me now treating with Dr. Irestone, it has, you know, completely changed my life. So did LimeStop. But so that was another grief portion for me of like, I was so invested in LimeStop and it saved my life. But then to know if you don't make the progress that you want, it's okay to seek, you know, another doctor, another source for help. It doesn't, it's not saying that anything's wrong with LimeStop, you know, but I needed something else to propel me. So for me to go in and out of like, okay, LimeStop still was amazing process that it helped me get this far, but now I need something else, which has then propelled me and then to learn or unlearn. So I had a lot of things I had to unlearn. Like I would have alarm set because I would forget things. I still have alarm set on my phone, even though I can remember things on my own. Um, I had to unlearn, you know, different coping mechanisms. So the grief of that, of like, I'm cognitively aware enough that I can do this on my own or Christy gets to deal with all my text messages of things. And she's like, Ashley, you can do this. Like, you know, you know, try not to let that fear stop you. Like you are in tune enough, you know, enough, that sort of thing of knowing when your body is ready and not to go back to that sick place of like, but I can't do that. So that grieving of where you were, where you are and where you will continue to go. That was just brilliant. I never even thought of the possibility of people who are helping each other out on the journey and then feeling, I don't know if it's rejection or what your what your emotion was. And then that triggering you through grief when a friend is taking a different treatment path. And because that treatment was so important to you and played such a vital role in your healing, that when someone was taking a different path, that triggered you into grief. Holy cow, that's so powerful. Well, and I, you know, thank God for her every day because she helps me see things differently. And I was like, okay, this is really working for you. And it helped me to come to terms with, I still have stuff going on as much as I wanted LimeStop to be my one all end all, you know, she helped and she does it in a way that you don't ever feel bad about yourself. You don't ever like second guess yourself. She has this genuine way of 
bringing out questions or just like, she'll sit with you until you're ready to, you know, acknowledge it. And then I saw how much it was helping her. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to give it a try. And it was a complete game changer. I mean, her sharing, you know, the success of Irishstone completely changed my life. So again, I appreciate you. So, and, and I appreciate both of you too. And, and, and I want to have a conversation with the two of you about another topic, which is this illness wellness spectrum that Dr. Rawls talks about in his book. But let's let's pause there because I want to come back to the grief cycle with Christy. Because Christy, one of the things that we learned from actor Kim Director, who we interviewed, was that she believed that because she had to constantly deal with grief as an actor, where she'd read for a part, get rejected have to go through the grief cycle and then be ready to read for the next part and get rejected. And she said, because she had to learn professionally how to deal with um, grief and go through the grief cycle quickly, when she started her, when she started her line journey, that was something that was really helpful to her to go through grief really quickly. So it looks like we have to go through the grief cycle many, many times on this journey. Actually, just you know, for the first time in 332 episodes, no one ever shared with us that that when you're trying to help someone else, that you can be triggered into grief yourself. That was just so powerful and new to us. Um, thank you, Ashley. I appreciate you. But um, Chrissy, talk to us about all the different times you had to grieve. Um, let's say within the journey, I don't want to talk about the grief that you had to deal with with your dad yet. I'd like to talk about that separately. But let's let's talk about, about grieving um, when you discover that you had Lyme disease, grieving when you discovered that Penelope had Lyme disease, grieving when you had to go through treatment, uh, and then and then maybe grieving when you left the community of, of treatment. Talk to us about all of those pieces on your journey. Um, sure. So to be quite frank, I was actually really relieved when I found out Penelope and I had it because it was like, okay, I kind of felt, and I'm sure a lot of people that listen to this feel so I don't even like to use the word crazy, but people were like, no, you're fine. There's nothing wrong with you. And you're like, there is something wrong with me and no one's listening. So I did feel that relief when we did get it. Um, and I was very optimistic, like, oh, we're just going to do herbs and this is going to be gone in a few months. I had no idea that this now looking back with all of the knowledge I have, of course, it doesn't happen overnight. So it's not going to take a month to just for it to be gone. Um, so that naive state, but with the grief of, I, <laughs> I was so dedicated to that year of, I mean, I had a routine, um, coffee enema, red light, castor oil pack. I would do all of this in one day. Um, Epsom salt bath. I would do acupuncture once a week, chiropractic once a week, cranial sacral once a week, uh, lymphatic massage once a week. I mean, this was my life. I was just trying to survive. I would do IV infusions. Um, this was a whole year of my life and I am very grateful I was able to and had all of those resources to utilize. Um, but just the grief of, <clears throat> this is gonna take it back to my dad. Um, probably gonna get emotional. My father asked me, the week before he passed away, if I would go to a movie with him. And um, I said, no, I can't. I have acupuncture, dad. And so there are some of those pieces where it's like, gosh, I was so just appointment based. And I need to, I mean, you, I was just trying to survive and live and not be 
neurologically um, impaired, able to be a mom and get off the couch and do fun things and have energy. Um, So I, I grieve the loss of just being able to just go to a movie because I was so structured. Um, and then as so that would be the, because you, you know, that's what your dad wanted you to do. Right. I mean, I, you know, there's nothing more painful to me than when my children are not feeling well. And I certainly wouldn't want them to do something other than go to an appointment that would help them to heal oh, yeah. than to right. spend time going to the movies with me. Yes. As much as I would love them to do that as well. But, you know, right. th- there's nothing more painful to a dad, quite frankly, especially, again, we're talking about father-daughter relationships. There's nothing more painful for me, and I only have girls, um, than seeing my my daughters in pain. And I, and, 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 and I hope you're not upset about that piece of that, because that's what your dad wanted you to do. Right. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm not. I guess I'm just... <clears throat> I was just so focused and so in it that sometimes it is okay to just breathe and like not go to an appointment that day. I think looking back, I, that's what I would tell people that you have to have a balance. You, you really do. You have to find joy in just the small things. If that's going to a movie or, you know, I don't know, um, grounding outside, like just putting your feet on the earth and just sitting in the sun. But because I wasn't, I was very type A structured. So, but Chrissy, so tie that to the conversation we were having about the grief cycle. Do you believe because you were grieving, the only thing you could do is sort of be focused and doing everything that you were doing in your appointments and you couldn't show yourself grace because you had to be focused or do you think because you're a mom and you knew you had to be as healthy as you could to take care of your child because you, you and she were on these parallel journeys that that was where your focus was. And it's not because you were grieving, but because you needed to be the best you can be so that you could be the best mom that Penelope could have. Uh, you know, I think it'd probably be both. I think there's a lot of duality in life with all of these things. Um, I think it would probably be a little, a little bit of both. Um, and then now being outside of that community, um, I'm, I'm grateful, but I still am. Yeah. I still go to those forums and I still go back because I'm just inside of me intuitively. I just, I just want to help you know, and I get everyone's a bio-individual, but just especially that emotional piece. I just write, hey, almost every every comment, I'm like, what are you doing for your emotional well-being when it comes to this? You just listed all of these physical symptoms, which we know behind those are emotional ones. Um, so what are you doing with that piece of it? Which, as you know, and you've just stated, a huge part of it is is grief and that grief cycle. And being aware of that, a lot of people aren't even aware of that piece when it comes to a diagnosis. So I think that is huge, Richard, especially even in the Western community, that's not even spoken of when you get a diagnosis. So let's let's talk about the the grief carousel rather than the grief cycle, right? Because cycle cycle is something we we cycle out of and and um, and we have an opportunity to create something new. But so many people in the community are stuck in a grief carousel where they're just grieving and grieving and grieving and grieving, right? And 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 you, Chrissy, did point out, um, in part based on your training and your experience, that uh, you know that we that we have this binary brain, uh, that our binary brain is going to put us in a position where we're going to be either in the sympathetic or the parasympathetic nervous system, that if we're in the sympathetic nervous system, we cannot heal, and that grief is going to 
going to place us, and of course we are bouncing back and forth, grief is going to place us in large part in the sympathetic nervous system, and we're not going, and we're going to be immunocompromised. So let's talk about people who are, who are on the grief carousel rather than the grief cycle, and not even knowing that there's an emotional right. piece of this, not even knowing that there is a grief carousel and the impact that that's having on their ability to heal. Um, for those people that are just on that carousel going round and round, I would start just bringing awareness, um, which, which is free and you can do at home is being aware of that vagus nerve and how important one great thing just to help them and their body get into more of a parasympathetic state is take a cold shower. You know, most of us have access to a very cold shower and just being aware of your body that way. I think once we're so focused on our symptoms and how terrible we feel, it is hard to get off that carousel and just take a minute and take a cold shower, ground yourself and find one thing to be grateful for. And that is something I have found impactful. And even with studies have shown gratitude, um, finding just one thing. So every evening before bed, Penelope and I share something we are grateful for. And that has been a habit for the last two years. Um, I think to help get off that carousel is just truly baby steps. So being aware of the vagus nerve and how you can get back into your parasympathetic system. Um, so once again, cold showers, grounding, which is also free, just get, go outside and put your feet on the earth. Um, if you're in Minnesota, I don't suggest doing that right now due to frostbite concern, but, um, Isn't yeah. it always cold in Minnesota? No, it's not. It can be like a hundred degrees in the summer. It's hot and humid. Uh, yeah. So, oh, I just see so, even you. So Chrissy, I, I really love that what you're doing is you're now helping people to understand that under any circumstance, but certainly when you're on a Lyme disease journey, that you have a binary brain and that you're going to be bouncing back and forth between sympathetic and parasympathetic, sympathetic and parasympathetic, right? And you were just giving some folks some tools to help them get from the parasympathetic into the sympathetic nervous system so that they can have a better experience. Because we're, in addition to not being able to heal when we're in the parasympathetic um, uh um, I'm sorry, we're in the sympathetic. Um, we, uh, we're also, in, we're suffering, we're in pain, right? And, and it's something that we're, you know, we're triggering back and forth based on all kinds of interaction that we have all the time, right? And you just gave some really beautiful tools. So let's, let's highlight those again. So what tools are you using when you find yourself in the sympathetic state to get yourself back into the parasympathetic state? So you're out of suffering and you're in a, in a place where you can be creative and you can be focused on your healing. Yeah. Um, so yes, I personally do cold showers. I do grounding outside. Um, also I, when I can feel myself going to that synthetic fight or flight, I recognize that now. And I take those deep breaths, which I thought I'm like deep breathing. Who does that? Like this, this is nonsense. And the more I've learned it truly helps there. Once again, there's research that shows that if you take those inhales and exhales very slowly, your body after five, only five, five big breaths, 
um, your body is able to get back into that parasympathetic state. There is a tool that I haven't personally used yet. Um, a good friend of mine, Dr. Holly Thompson, she's a biological dentist and she's going to start using this in her practice, but it's a little red light for in your ear because your vagus nerve is attached right through there um, that you put that red light in and it activates the vagus nerve. I think it, she said it was like $25. So I, I do have that on my list of tools to kind of get. Um, and if we're going to be honest about these grief cycles, I am still in mine when it comes to flying. I have not flown. Well, I should take that back. I flew like seven weeks after my dad passed. Um, it was horrific. I like, you had to drag me on the plane, but that flight anxiety, I still, I still have it. And I'm still grieving it because I love traveling. Um, and I, but I get into a fight or flight, like it well, is. Let's talk about that because, you know, one of the things that we've learned from several of the people who we've interviewed is that, um, is that flying is something we have to be careful about from the standpoint of the impact that it has on our health. Right. Um, uh, and, and there, there are a lot of people who are in the airline industry, both pilots and, 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 um, and stewards and stewardesses who get sick because they're flying all the time, right? So there are a lot of different elements to that. So there are a lot of people in the Lyme community who are instinctively feeling that going on a plane is immunocompromising and that it can be dangerous. And as a result of that, it triggers them into anxiety. There's nothing wrong with that because it's true that we should be taking steps to protect ourselves if we're going to fly, especially if we have a chronic illness or we have, we're, we're managing a chronic illness because it is immunocompromising. So be, be more gentle with yourself because your gut is telling you that it is something that you have to be careful about. And there are some steps that you can take and it's something we should probably all build out together. I think Crystal Hefner is doing some great work with showing what you need to do in order to make sure that you're you're not going to be um, you know, further immunocompromised when you travel because she's done a lot of traveling. And that was one of the things that we, 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 we learned from her when, when we interviewed her on our podcast and, and, and a lot of work that she's developing. So I, I certainly want to encourage folks to look at Crystal um, Hefner's page and, and look at some of the tools that she's developing to help people who are traveling. So be gentle, Christy, you're being hard on yourself again. And, you know, and your gut is telling you a good thing. So Ashley, why don't you help us with this? Talk to us about breathing and the impact that breathing is, is playing in your, um, in your journey. And, you know, one of the things that we've learned is that the amygdala is a part of your brain that is your smoke detector, right? And one of the things that you can do is you can actually, you can actually use, some people use box breathing, some people use different types of breathing where you're, you're, um, you're, um, you're, you're breathing and it calms down the amygdala, which then ultimately allows you to go into the parasympathetic state. So actually, let's talk to us about whether breathing has been helpful for you and what other tools you've used to help you untrigger. And might I just add with the amygdala, they have shown, which I had stated right at the beginning of COVID, this is funny you say this, on my Instagram about, about the amygdala because I just love science and neuroscience and all those things, but that was the space that we were all in, right? And how many of us are still in that from what has happened these last two years? When people say, I haven't experienced trauma ever, I said, you've lived the last two years in COVID. So yes, you have, even though you might not think that it has subconsciously, we've all been 
infected. So our amygdalas are all on high alert to need uh, to so be you're saying, But you're arguing the first step in personal development, and quite, quite frankly, the first step in healing is to recognize that we have this dual brain and that we are going to be triggering back and forth between the two states and that we have to develop some tools to untrigger us from the sympathetic state into the into the uh, parasympathetic state so that we can heal. Yes. So actually talk, talk to us about uh, how you became aware of this binary brain and these different states and how important it was for you to develop tools so that you could untrigger yourself from being in fight or flight. So like Christine mentioned, I was very much like very rigid on everything I would do to manage the physical symptoms. I didn't quite understand those that were already further along in their healing journey when they would talk about, you know, dysregulation, or I didn't understand the emotional impact. The further I got into it, the more physical symptoms I was able to, you know, heal then I could really focus on the emotional or the nervous system dysregulation. I was in so much pain that for someone to say, you need to deal with your emotional trauma or your emotional baggage, there was no way. And cognitively, I was operating at a second or third grade level. So I understand the deep importance of that. But I also want some people to recognize, depending on your physical state, you're, you may not be able to even handle that. Cognitively, I couldn't have handled emotional um you know, modalities to work on that. Um, and just physically, there was no more, I didn't have any more energy to exude to do that because emotional healing and emotional work can be very physically draining as well. Um, so one of the questions I was going to ask Christy was, so I have, you know, different healing modalities. What do you recommend for like the emotional aspect, like QNRT, that was something you recommended. And I'll let you explain what that was or is, because you're going to get trained in that as well. But for me doing QNRT and I started doing that, what was that a year and a half ago or two years? I think it was a year and a half. Um, that was a complete game changer for me to get my nervous system regulated because I was still in that fight or flight stage and I didn't recognize it. So I had gone through Limestop, was still in fight or flight. And now looking back and I hadn't done any emotional work through Limestop, it makes sense why I hit a plateau. You know, Christy then brought me these tools and helped me see where I was at and kind of, you know, it helped me to see why I, you know, plateaued with Limestop, not saying it was Limestop's fault, but there was tools that I was missing. So Christy, will you share more, you know, different healing modalities on the emotional front and explain what QNRT is for those who have never done it? Sure. So QNRT is quantum neural reset therapy. And once again, they use applied kinesiology and it's actually rewiring your neuron pathway of any emotional trauma you've experienced. It has a very high success rate with PTSD, um, as well as so a lot of PTSD soldiers, um, soldiers with PTSD, excuse me. Um, and this, they do <clears throat> they do it with your right and left side of your brain and they figure out where it's held. They go through this book, which has actual diagnosis of like mono or Lyme or um, you know, even bronchitis is on there. And with that is associated with physical symptoms as well as emotional symptoms. And then you <clears throat> will figure out a intention 
to write to help resolve that, um, whatever those feelings and physical symptoms that are coming up. And then they will, it depends, they do your five senses. So it depends what you test for um, with that applied kinesiology. So if it's hearing, um, you, she uses the gal that I go to and Ashley um, uses a tuning fork, uh, as well as if it's taste, she has those uh, rescue remedies that you can put in your mouth. And then one of them is shrugging if you need to move your body and she'll rewire it with um, a laser and then muscle test and make sure that it's all cleared. And then you go home with these words of affirmations you say for however many days your body needs to. She also um, muscle tests you for that. And you can see a shift usually, I, I mean, maybe Ashley has a different experience, but within for me, it was like a day or two. I will say, and I know Ashley can vouch for this. The first time you have it done, your body is wiped. So just plan to like go home and take a three hour nap, totally normal. And that right there just speaks volumes of how much the emotions have an impact on our body. Um, but Chrissy, what's concerning me about what you're describing is the paradox that Ashley just shared with us. And that was, Ashley was so sick that she couldn't add another modality to her treatment, but she knows because she didn't have that modality in her treatment that her body couldn't heal because she was she was in, stuck in fight or flight, right? So how do we strike that balance for folks in the community who need to have the proper, um, again, I don't want to call it mindset, but, but have the proper um, you know, emotional support uh, but can't do the additional work because it's so exhausting to do the additional work. I mean, where, how do we, how do we deal with that paradox? Um, I would then suggest uh, mind, body, spirit release, which I also do that as well. That I don't even, I know this sounds wild, but you don't even need to be there in person. I can do it virtually because energetically we are able to test that way. Um, and that is getting it out on a cellular level as well but you're not using all of your five senses and changing that neural pathway. Technically it's a gentler way to start. Um, however, even with that, there's also, you know, EMDR, most people have heard of um, that eye movement also might too, be too much for people. ART which is another great one, which is a little less than EMDR. And then just talk therapy in general, which you, you told me at the beginning, Richard, luckily, Matt had you every evening to speak to because it is a lonely journey. Um, so just finding, it, it doesn't even have to be a therapist, but just someone you can emotionally connect with to say how you're feeling. Because as a human, we want to be validated with how we're feeling, either physically or emotionally, and having someone be able to guide you. I mean, luckily he had you, even though you're like, our age difference this, but you know, he was able to confide in you and what a beautiful thing and gift you were able to give him. So let's focus on the medical community, uh, yeah. my friend Christy, because I think there are a lot of things that we have to focus on together um, that sort of set us up a failure because of the structure of the medical community. And I'll have to admit to you that I've been very critical of the medical community and I'm a little bit more gentle in my, uh, in my um, observations about the community now, but I do, wanna, I do wanna talk about a couple of things. So the first thing is, 
we we had a we had a guest um, in the recent past um, give us a little bit of a um, you know a slap across the hands with a ruler, and she said, uh, "I love your podcast and I love your platform, but one of the things that I'm uncomfortable about is you're a heal or bust platform, uh, and that's where you guys are. And it's not it, maybe you need to be a little bit more gentle with her argument." And I started thinking more about that, and I, I have to admit my reaction initially was not positive. Um, and then I started to read some of Dr. Rawls's work, most specifically his recent book, um, The Cellular Wellness Solution, which is a brilliant book, and I strongly urge everyone to read that book. He talked about healing as a spectrum, the illness wellness spectrum. And, and his argument essentially is, is that we should be moving along a spectrum toward wellness, not have this thought in our mind that we're going to get cured. And I really think that's a more appropriate way of looking at this. But the problem is, is that the medical community is really designed around cures for acute illnesses. And our system does not, is not set up to help people through chronic illness. So give me your thoughts on that as a medical professional, Christine, who has more degrees and certifications after her name than she has in her name, that you were trained in a system that's really just designed to cure people because it's really only designed to treat people who have acute illnesses rather than to treat people who also have chronic illnesses. Oh, there's so much I want to say, but like <laughs> well, I'm going to give you more, one more piece of that because the, because the problem with that is that it creates a mindset for all of us who come into the community expecting to be cured rather than to be on a spectrum toward wellness. And because we have that mindset, we're triggered into the sympathetic nervous system anytime we are we are dealing with you know uh, bumps in the road. I don't know. See, and I have seen it differently where, oh, I can't believe I'm going to just say it. Uh, I feel like in the Western, okay, let me preference. I worked in the ER. So when a man would or woman would come in having a heart attack, I am not going to cure them with my essential oils. I know that they need a stent, but they needed preventative care. But I feel but that's an acute illness, right? That's an acute illness. And, and, yeah. and our system is brilliant at helping people through acute illness. But I feel like the people that would come in with these chronic issues and pain, um, like fibromyalgia was a huge one I would see. Um, I'm just going to say it. They really that's how they get paid is with these chronic illnesses. People are going to continue to be on medications. They're going to be continued to be seen. I feel, oh, I just, I do. I feel strongly about. No, but Chrissy, I, I don't, I'm looking at it differently. See, I, I would make that, I, I had made that argument in the past. And really what, what it is, is we are not equipped to help people with chronic illnesses. It almost looks like there's a financial incentive to keep chronically ill people on the system and on the medication, but really 
you know, the, the problem is not so much what the pharmacological response is, it's our failure to look for root causes. And the reason we're not looking for root causes is because we don't have time to look for root causes. And why do we not have enough time to look for root causes? It's because we have a medical system that only allows the doctor to spend 10 minutes with you when yes. you come in. So it's yeah. an acute system. It's not a chronic system. Yes. Yeah. And I guess I've, I've never... That's, that's a great observation. And I would agree with you. I've never been asked that in the sense of the chronic versus acute. So now this has me like, I'm going down the rabbit hole in my own brain, but yeah, that is brilliant. And there isn't enough time, 10 minutes, isn't enough time for anyone to be understand really what's going on in their body. So I'm like, yeah, I, I, what I want, I want to share with you, and, and I'm sorry for, for interrupting, but I, there is something I want to add to this is, you know, one of the questions that Matt Sabatello would ask all of our guests when we were doing our interviews together is he would say, what was the difference between treating with a traditional doctor and a Lyme literate doctor, right? And the first answer we got from every single person was, my Lyme literate doctor would spend a lot more time with me. My Lyme literate doctor spent three hours assessing me. My Lyme literate doctor, and it was time. So it's not that the Lyme literate doctors were necessarily better trained or more caring. What you're getting when you treat with a Lyme literate medical doctor is you're stepping out of the system. You're paying that doctor privately. They're not limited to the 10 minutes they can spend with you. And because of that, you're getting better care because, they're, because an acute care system only gives a doctor 10 minutes. So it's not like the doctors are less caring. It's not like they're, they're worse trained. It's not like they suck. They have 10 minutes. They can't yeah. treat somebody chronically ill with 10 minutes of time or 15 minutes of time. And that really is the difference. Now, I'll tell you, we also interview people from all over the world, right? And, and we've had people in this country say, the reason we can't treat people with chronic illnesses is because our medical system sucks and we need to move to a universal healthcare system. Well, guess what? Everyone in a universal healthcare system that we've interviewed from Canada, from Israel, which is the gold standard, the UK, guess what? Every one of them had to step out of their system in order to be get treated as well. So it isn't, doesn't matter how you're paying for your care when you're in a public system. It matters how much time the doctor has to spend with you. And because we have a system that's built around treating acute illness, we are not giving the medical professionals enough time to properly assess us. We're not giving our medical professionals enough time to listen to us or listen to our moms when our moms are coming in and describing it to us. And as a result, we have to step out of the system to get the care that we need because it's a different system when you're chronically ill. Don't you also feel that there's a component? So my husband's a nurse on the COVID floor. Um, do you guys both feel there's a component of they're not taught preventative care at all. They're not taught to look for root, you know, diseases. So like when someone comes in with a diagnosis, any label, and now I'm not talking, Chrissy, like you mentioned, those that are in a state of they need help immediately or they will die. I'm not talking about those situations. Um, but like when I went back to school, I would ask my husband things, you know, about diabetes, about these things. And they weren't taught to discuss all the things that led up to that diagnosis. A diagnosis is a label. It doesn't tell you why you're sick. So I could go down the rabbit hole of, yes, Please do. that whole thing, but they aren't taught that. So if we could integrate, integrate the preventative measures or look at what you're, what, what you put into and onto your body, how is that either supporting your body 
or hindering your body. Well, what does that have to do with the medical system, Ashley? That's our responsibility, right? Look, if, if I were going to be overly critical of the medical system, it's because they're setting us up to believe that we're going to get a pill if we get sick. They're not they're not putting us in a position where we are learning to respond with ability, right? That we're taking responsibility for our own health. So we have all kinds of, and we're going to talk about the vulnerability piece of this risk assessment, but it's not the medical system's responsibility to make us aware of what we're putting on our body or what we're eating or whether we're moving or doing those kinds of things. It's our responsibility. Now, I will say that they've set us up to believe that we can eat like shit and we can put whatever we want on our body and we could not do any, we cannot move and we can drink whatever we want and smoke whatever we want and do whatever we want to do. And then we'll walk in and we'll get a pill and we'll get better. Yes, I'll criticize the industrial uh, medical uh, system for that. But the truth is, we need to take responsibility for our health. And if we take responsibility for our health, then we're going to be less vulnerable to these diseases. And if we get bitten by a tick and it spits stuff up into us, because we we, we have a, a good foundation, we'll be less vulnerable and less likely to get sick. Yeah. No, I totally agree with you. But devil's advocate, if people don't even know it's yeah. an option, like same with anything that you put into your body, especially the last couple of years, things that were pushed people weren't given the information to make an informed decision on that topic. Um, people were told you're a grandma killer if you don't get it, but they weren't given, here's everything that's in it. Here's what can happen. So I do see that point, And I am very much a person of like, take responsibility, own it. I got really sick because I ate Taco Bell every day and drank Mountain Dew. And I treated my body like garbage. I own that. But also on the other spectrum, we're not sharing, like, well, we are in the community. But isn't that an educational flaw, actually, and not a medical system flaw? I mean, we're just not well educated. I mean, it's a it's a it's a it's a failure of the educational system, not the medical system. I'd say both. I mean, this could go into a big topic. It goes up high. I mean, what comes down from top, you know, is deep, but it's multifaceted. It's it's a tricky one. So, Chrissy, give us your thoughts as a medical professional. Give it. Give us your thoughts on on this acute versus chronic care system and the uh, and the training. So a Ashley's arguing that it's a training issue, and and I do want to explore that. And I'm going to give you another perspective uh, that we have as a result of interviewing Lyme pioneers. We'll get there in a second. Do you think it's a training issue? Do you think it's a, an education issue as a as someone again who has more education, more medical education than anyone I know? Um, what do you, what do you think the issue is? Well, I I believe that once again there should be duality. We should have responsibility, but also we've been conditioned as a society that, and maybe not in this Lyme community, expect oh, and especially generationally, my mom's my mom and dad's generation, um, that the doctors are like gods, like they know everything. I'm going to go to the doctor. They're going to tell me. They're going to tell me what to do. So when they only have three hours of nutrition lecture for their entire 10 years of medical school. Um, I think that is a disservice to us as a culture. Um, should they be aware of everything you put on your body? Mm, you know, I think it should be a question when you go in and see them for 10 minutes, like, how are you emotionally stable? I know they do do that depression, anxiety screening now, but as well as what are you eating and drinking? I think those are questions that should be discussed with your primary. What are you doing for exercise? Um, and then just education of what, what should be, what, what can be utilized to help your body succeed and your bucket not get too full. 
Yeah, but Chrissy, we, we've interviewed some of the Lyme pioneers. We interviewed Dr. Joseph Bioscano. We interviewed uh, Dr. Alan McDonald. I mean, these guys were working on Long Island in the 70s, long mm-hmm. before the Lyme pandemic, well, before Lyme became endemic. These guys weren't trained uh, uh, about Lyme disease. They were not trained about anything, you know, that you're now advocating for, you know, being a part of, of medical training. Yet they developed treatment frameworks that dealt with all those issues in the 70s, in yeah. the early 80s. I mean, if you look at Dr. Burascano's outline on how to treat Lyme disease, and this is a guy who, by the way, they took his license away from him. They made him work under the supervision of another doctor for two years. And guess what? All of the modern outlines for how to treat Lyme disease, this guy, this guy wrote the guidelines in the 70s, despite not having any training, not having any experience, just making observations about how to treat. So I think doctors are given the training they need in order to be developed in the clinical setting, the care that's necessary to treat doctors. I think they have it. I think we just have to allow them to use it. And what happened with Dr. Bioscano, for example, is insurance companies began to make complaints against him because they started to make complaints against him. Medical boards came in and they suspended the guy. And they made this brilliant doctor who came up with the treatment protocol for Lyme disease in the 70s work under the supervision of another doctor. Now the guy is not working as a you know practicing physician now. He works for hygienics, but he's you know, but he's not working as a practicing physician because he went through having to spend millions of dollars to protect himself. But the problem was not his training. He had adequate training to come up with a treatment protocol in the 70s. It was the it was the medical boards and the insurance companies making complaints about him treating people with antibiotics long term. Same thing is happening now with COVID. I mean, all the doctors that came out and told the truth about COVID and how to support your body. So it's unfortunate that those that you know can truly help people are being penalized and losing their license, losing their income and their ability to help people. So it's really the industrial medical complex. I don't think it's I don't think it's physician training. I think physicians are trained well enough. I really do. I think most medical doctors are trained well enough to do the work that needs to be done in order to be able to properly treat us. I think most nurses are trained well enough um, to give us the treatment that we need. The problem is you folks are not given the time that you need to properly assess and treat us. You're not given the flexibility to be a clinician and, and, and assess whether or not we fall within the bell-shaped curve or we are outliers and need specific and different treatment for us and our conditions that aren't necessarily falling within the traditional frameworks that are designed or, or, or that are called uh, generally accepted medical practices. It's letting medical professionals work as medical professionals rather than people who are there to generate fees for insurance companies. I, I have a question. Why isn't his framework like in every doctor's office that he put together? Like, why aren't we utilizing that? It's it's a great question. It, it is a great question. After we interviewed him and he sent it to us and he, again, and, and he's updated it several times. But when I look sure. back at what, what Dr. Bioscano had created in the late seventies and the early eighties, it's exactly what what we need now, right? I mean, he he was he was the person, for example, who said to us, based on his clinical experience in the seventies and in the early eighties, that if people didn't move, they didn't heal. 
He talked to us about the different types of exercises. He talked about the impact that, you know, rigorous exercise will have on your T-cells. He talked about the observation that he made about people who were engaging in rigorous cardiovascular exercise and how it reduced the T-cell count and how that impacted their ability to heal. I mean, this is a guy that was that, that was writing about this and, and, and discovering this in the 70s, and it's now... 2022, and we're coming back to all the stuff that Bioscanner was, you know, was developing 50 years ago, right? But he wasn't the only one. I'm just using him as the example. Dr. McDonald was doing brilliant stuff, and there were a lot of guys and gals who were doing fantastic work based on having training from the 50s and the 60s when they were in medical school. So I don't think it's a training issue. I don't. And again, I want, I, I'd like you guys to debate that with me. I don't think it's a training issue. I don't think Cletus was not properly trained, actually, to do a good job at the VA hospital. I think he is adequately trained. We're just not, you know, we're, we're, we're putting, we're putting restraints on these well-trained medical professionals, and we're not allowing them to treat us the way we need to be treated when we have a chronic illness. Yeah, it's, it's a multifaceted topic because he wasn't given the information. Like I'd ask him topics of like, okay, you have this situation. What are the root causes? I don't, I don't know. Not saying it's his fault, not saying it's nurse's fault. They weren't, you know, trained or taught to look at things from, okay, you have fibromyalgia. What caused it? You have MS. What caused it? They were taught to look at, okay, what symptoms do you have now? How can we help manage those? Typically it's with prescription, not saying in every situation it is. Um, so he wasn't given that lens or, you know, they weren't taught root cause. They weren't taught preventative. You know, it was more, here's what you have. You come in, here's what we're going to do. Especially when COVID came around, I would ask questions and I'm not saying it's his fault. I'm not saying it's a nurse's fault, the doctor's fault. There's many components to this situation and others, but I was like, well, are you checking, you know, do they have any pre-existing conditions? Do they have comorbidities? Do they have underlying line that they don't know about? I mean, had I gone and gotten, you know, deathly sick with COVID before I knew I had Lyme, I now know that would have been a main component of why I would have gotten so sick. But because it goes undiagnosed for so long, those things weren't looked at. You know, vitamin D levels weren't looked at. You know, how is their mineral status? Like those things weren't looked at. It was more quick reactive, you know, sort of thing. So I see both sides and it's hard because it is a very multifaceted topic. So, Christy, as uh, as as somebody who has been trained as a medical professional, do you share Ashley's perspective that you weren't given an adequate foundation in order to be able to get to root causes or because, of course, there are going to be new diseases that are constantly going to be coming into the medical community. You're all going to have to treat new things. There are going to be things that we don't know about, but you're still going to have to be able to treat it. So do you think you were given through your training, Christy, adequate foundations to treat these new diseases or do you think that you can only treat those things that were well understood at the time that you were getting your education and that those frameworks placed place some restrictions on your ability to um to get to root causes. Oh, definitely I would say Ashley is 100% correct. I had no idea what root causes was until I was diagnosed with Lyme. I I was like, "Oh yeah, nope, they have MS. They have fibromyalgia." Okay, well like Ashley said, we are going to help with those symptoms and treat them. And, and usually it was a prescription. Um, I mean, I was also very much in a different setting in the ER where, like you said, a lot of that was acute, but also some of it was people came in with like a chronic, chronic abdominal pain. And looking back now, um, I remember at the end of my ER career before I stayed home with Penelope was 
I would just even mention, and this is very basic. Are you on a probiotic? And they'd be like, what's a probiotic? And I'm like, well, you've had abdominal pain for like, let's just start healing the gut. And you, I was looked at like a deer in headlights. And I remember I had a man come in with back pain and he had chronic back pain. I go, have you ever seen a chiropractor? That's actually sometimes covered under insurance. He goes, a chiropractor? No. So just, yeah, getting that discussion of that chronic pain, but, and I was able, I, Richard, I was able to do that with the five minutes I had to discharge them, my discharge direction or yeah, directions, um, instructions. So I think even though the time is a huge thing to really dive into it, even just those small pieces of knowledge that I was able to give in five minutes, you know, that can make it make a huge impact. So we, we talked a lot about education, right? We talked about, we, we like, love to focus on the failures of the educational system to properly train doctors, nurses, and other healthcare professionals. But what about the, what about the um, education that we have as patients and the expectations that we have when we walk in as patients, right? Because if, if, we, if, we were, if we were educated to understand that when we walked into a doctor's office that the doctor was only going to have 10 or 15 minutes to treat us, that we walked into a doctor's office, we were walking into a business, right? And the business was going to be based around a model that although we believe they were going to be giving us care that would give us you know, a done for you model. It's actually a done together model where we have to work together and I have to be well prepared when I come into the doctor's office and give the doctor everything that the doctor should need in order to be able to properly help me come to a diagnosis. And then we should, uh, you know, and that doctor should then have the resources to help me to determine what the spectrum of opportunities are for me to choose to uh, treat my uh, my condition, and then we can and then we could move forward with our relationship. I mean, isn't isn't part of the problem uh, that we as patients are not properly educated on what we should expect when we walk into this acute care environment? I I could yes. However, um, like Ashley had stated. She was in such a cognit cognitively poor place. How would she even be able to tell the doctor like what's going on? Unless she had, you know, <laughs> me at that time with her to be like, hey, I'm going to be your advocate. This is what's going on. I think that's a hard piece to navigate as well when you're so sick. Absolutely. So, so, so let's just, yeah, let's walk it back to this larger piece of mindset, right? And what, what our mindset is when we're not feeling well, right? And if our mindset is that we're going to walk in and we're going to get a pill and we're going to be cured, that's one mindset. And we have a certain set of expectations about what we're going to have to do in order to be able to get better and what the doctor and nurses and other therapists that we're going to deal with are going to be able to do for us. Another mindset is that we're on this illness wellness spectrum. Right. And as someone who's on an illness wellness spectrum where we are now learning about how we can read symptoms and what our body is telling us about where we are on the spectrum and what steps we should be taking to get to the root of what's causing us to feel ill as opposed to well, isn't that a different mindset? And won't that mindset put us in a position where we're more likely to get a better outcome? Yes, 100%. And with that mindset, I think is huge going back to listening to your own intuition, that gut feeling. I think a lot of us push that down when we need to speak. All right. Devil's advocate. 
on the mindset portion. Um, Christy's laughing at me. Um, depends on like, yes, a positive mindset is completely helpful, but I also want people to know and understand when you are so incredibly sick and you have multiple infections in your brain, you can try as hard as you want to, to be positive, to be happy, to be grateful. But there are times when those infections are hijacking your ability to be positive. And I remember telling myself, okay, I'm going to be happy today. I'm going to name three things I'm grateful for, which I did, but it was fake. And I'm not saying I didn't have anything to be grateful for. I didn't have the capacity due to the infections in my brain and my gut to truly have feelings, to truly feel grateful. So I also want to put that out there for those people that you really are trying to be positive and grateful. Know that if you can't, if you keep hitting that hurdle or the wall, there are reasons why, like anxiety, depression, there are reasons why, and it's not your fault. So I agree with all those things, but just know it's okay if you can't self-talk yourself into positivity per se. So one of the things that we've learned from many of the uh, people that we've interviewed who are leaders in the uh, Lyme disease community, Dr. Leo Shea, for example, who is, you know, who's a star psychologist who treats uh, Lyme disease, or Dr. Greenberg, who is, again, a star psychiatrist who's treating pediatric Lyme, um, have argued that every emotional, every emotional um, symptom is a result of a physiological cause. Now, could be, it could be genetic, which is one of the things that that Dr. Greenberg slapped me across the hands uh, about when we were debating that last week. Um, but uh, it could be the bugs in your brain. It could be, you know, the parasites in your brain. It could be a number of different things that are going on, right? So how do we strike that balance, Ashley, between um, making sure that we have the proper um, uh, tools to keep us in the um, parasympathetic state so that our, our immune system can work for us, um, but be gentle with ourselves and, um, and, you know, help us to get through that, you know, that paradox that we were already talking about before, because I agree with you, we have to be gentle. And you were saying you have to be gentle with yourself, right? And you can't beat yourself up if you, if you're struggling with having these pro-social emotions that you want. But on the other side of the coin, if you don't have tools to get you into the, into the parasympathetic state, then your immune system is going to be compromised and your immune system is not going to be able to defeat it. So how do we deal with that, that conflict? That's the million dollar question. And unfortunately for everyone there, it's going to be a little different from looking back on my journey and what I know now, I wish I would have um, found a like a true root cause practitioner in Limestop was, but it didn't then integrate the nervous system dysregulation. So had they shared like, let's look into the emotional component. Let's look into, you know, how dysregulated your nervous system is. And I'm not saying it's a fault of Limestop. They were doing what they can. But if someone would have mentioned it to me more regularly or just said, Hey, I think you should look into this, then that would have been on me if I didn't look into it. So I wish it would have been more openly shared you know, but then it's a double-edged sword because would I have done that with all the things I was doing? Well, could you have done it? Could you? Yeah. Have done that? I mean, that's the, that's the that's the other piece of this. So then, if you can't do it, then what's the alternatives, right? So, so Christy, let me ask you another question. We we interviewed Dr. Tipti Agarwal um, from Case Integrative, and one of the things that she put on our radar was prehabilitation, and it's actually now become a part of actually a framework that we're developing here at Tick Bootcamp. We call it the PARM framework, where we have Prehabilitation, we have assist, we don't use the word kill, 
we have rehabilitation, and then we have maintenance, right? That's a four-step process that you'd want to go through. And what Dr. Agarwal talked about was, at least in the surgical setting, that if you go through a rehabilitation process, the research is showing that the outcome is substantially better, which actually triggered in my, in my um, mind an experience that I had when my mother-in-law went through her hip surgery at the Hospital for Special Surgeries. And what the Hospital for Special Surgeries required her to do, and she wasn't at the time taking care of herself, is go to a dentist and go to a cardiologist, and go to a podiatrist. And, and, and they put her through this whole series of steps that she had to take, or they wouldn't have given her the surgical procedure. So she had to go through a prehabilitation process, which actually put her in a position where she was healthier than she had ever been since the time that I had known her. She then went through her hip surgery and had this really positive outcome. So part of, part of what I think we have to focus on here in the Lyme community is when we go through this process of using a tool like Lyme stop, where we're killing the the you know the microbes, and when we don't, you know, when is the proper time to use this in the spectrum of care? And perhaps we have to go through a, a prehabilitation process where we're dealing with our mindset, where we're dealing with with you know understanding the binary nature of our central nervous system and when we may be dysregulated and why that's being caused. And, and perhaps we have to go through the process of, of having these other pieces in place before we then start to kill the microbes so we can have a better outcome. So Chris, give me your reaction to that as a, as a medical professional. Do you think we at Tech Bootcamp should be advocating for prehabilitation rather than immediately going to the point where we're trying to kill the microbes in our body? Uh, yes, I definitely 100% support that and agree, as well as I'm assuming there's some foundation foundation health work in there. Um, that you guys would be, yeah, I guess my question, <clears throat> luckily my brain fog wasn't, I knew my name, I was able to speak unlike Ashley. So I'm wondering, I guess, Ashley's viewpoint on if that would have been helpful at all. If she, would you, like you had stated before, you weren't in an emotional space to do that because your physical symptoms were so severe. However, maybe with just even a few of these foundational pieces, you would be able to start doing some mindset work. Yeah, for me, cognitively, I would not have been able to understand the emotional component nor dig deep enough to sit with the feelings that led to the symptoms. I cognitively would not have been able to do the nervous system work if it was something like QNRT at the time. Um, not saying that, you know, for some people, I think that would be great if they are in a space where they can, I just know that I was so sick that I couldn't have done it, but also looking back, I could have started those things had I known about them much earlier, but I was so focused on the physical that I didn't understand the importance of any of those things. So I would do so much, like Christy said, I would do the coffee enemas. I did those twice a day for a year. I did, um, cranial sacral once a week. I did um, chiropractic two to three times a week. So I had so many things and I was so rigid in my day-to-day, -day, you know, healing modalities because I thought that that was going to propel me. Looking back, those things definitely helped me, but they also, I was so rigid that I caused so much more stress thinking I needed to try every healing modality and tool that came my way. So looking back, those things are helpful, but I wish someone had said, it's okay. You don't have to do everything and all that comes your way. Maybe focus, like you said, Rich, on these bigger foundational startup things and don't continue to stress yourself out because I was putting so much stress on myself to do everything and do it right. 
former type A personality, I think that happens with a lot of us that get really sick, that if I could have let go of some of those things and just said, I'm going to work it more on the emotional or um, the, you know, autonomic nervous system, fight or flight state, that that would have helped propel me more. So at the beginning, could I have done it? No. But if I would have let go of some healing modalities and focused on those two items, I think it would have been huge. So Chrissy, one of the reasons why we here at Tick Bootcamp ask about achievement and ask our guests and now look back at the things they've done and the order in which they would do it is for this very conversation, right? And, and, and actually, again, you're always so brilliant and I, I appreciate the way you're sharing this, right? Because I think these tools like QNRT or DRNS or Gupta or any of these tools have their place. And the first time that was put on our radar was when we interviewed Dr. I'm not Dr. We interviewed Dorothy Leland, who is, of course, uh, the vice president of LymeDisease.org, and she's the author of of the Bible on parenting Lyme, right? Or one of the co-authors of of, of the um, of, of of the guide on parenting Lyme. When we interviewed her. What she said was that when she was parenting her daughter. Her daughter remained symptomatic despite not having any of the microbes in her system until she went through neural retraining. When she went through the neural retraining, which was at the end of her journey, then she became symptomatic free and was able to move forward with her life, right? So when, when Dorothy put it on our radar, you know, back in when we were really early on and really sucked at this podcasting stuff, we were like, we were like, wow, what is this neural retraining and when should it be done, right? So this order is significant, right? So neural retraining actually, as you've now really powerfully shared with us with your experience, couldn't be done before you, you know, before you were ready to do it. You were too sick. You couldn't add something else to the list. You couldn't even focus on it. You were just so impaired, right? So that's not the time to do that. But we have to have some neural retraining early on because if we don't have it in the prehabilitation phase, then our immune system is going to be compromised and our immune system is not going to be able to kill the bugs. Because remember, the only thing that's happening when we're using antibiotics or herbals or anything else that's going to assist us with killing the microbes is that it's just aiding the immune system. The immune system ultimately has to, has to win the game. And if the immune system doesn't, you're not going to get better, right? We know that, right? So let me, let me ask you, if, if, if we're too sick at the prehabilitation phase or even at the assist phase of, of, our, of our treatment to use these neural retraining tools that are really rigorous, then what about, what about psychedelics? What, are you, what, are, what is your reaction to psychedelics and using psychedelics early on in the process? Because if we're using psychedelics and we're using these types of tools at the prehabilitation phase so that we're getting out of these neurological loops that our body necessarily will get into because we're being attacked by these microbes, then maybe we can, we can have the benefit of the neural retraining without having to have all the energy to do a rigorous program like QNRT or DRNS or Gupta or vital side or any of those types of, of uh, neural retraining tools. Are you referring to microdosing or? I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't have a bias. So you're like, I'm really, I'm really, um, I'm, I, I judge no training. I draw no tool. It's, it's, it's whatever works. I'm just wondering what your reaction as two leaders in this community would be to not only prehabilitation, and I really like your reaction to prehabilitation, but also using, using tools like combo or psychedelics or or some other some other some other 
tools that will focus on neural retraining that will not require a lot of time and energy and focus when you don't have time, energy, and focus to make available to your healing journey. I would support that modality. Um, however, it's just, once again, we're bio-individuals. I don't think psychedelics would help for me personally. Um, I've never done them. I just intuitively feel like, nope, I don't think that's, and maybe a couple of years from now, I would be more open to that. Um, but I do. So Christian, I, I strongly urge you to read some of Michael Pollan's work, uh, you I, know, the New York Times reporter and his, and, and he, and he has a brilliant series on, 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 on psychedelics uh, on Netflix. And, and again, I, I've never, I, like, I've never used psychedelics. I'm not advocating for something. I'm just thinking that maybe because of the paradox that Ashley has so powerfully shared with us, that we know that we have to we have to deal with the neurological elements. We know we have to get into the parasympathetic sympathetic nervous system. And we know we have all these bugs in our brain and we have all these other things going on that are causing us to be obsessive in so many different ways. Um, and so, you know, well, um, so tightly scheduled that perhaps there, there can be some pharmacological or, you know, other tools that can help us with the neural retraining at the prehabilitation phase. Yeah, I, I would 100% support that. <clears throat> Excuse me. For everyone else but you. <laughs> well, in, along those lines. Uh, just to see <laughs> the psychedelic piece. As of right now, I know um, a lot of doctors that have done the microdosing and helped a lot of people. Right now, I can intuitively tell it's not the space for me right this moment. Um, but it's not something I would say I'd never do. Well, I, but, but Chrissy, you're also you're also on the other side of this, right? I mean, you're you know you you've gotten through it, right? And 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 you you're not somebody who's now neurologically stuck in fight or flight. And, but I, and having that interfere with your ability to, 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 to go forward with your treatment. I am with flying. So Richard, if you were like, this would work, you could get on a plane tomorrow. I'd say, do it. I'm done. All right. I don't even care. I will do it. I will do it. So there's still some pieces that I, that I'm still working through. But it sounds to me that, that flying is just a trigger for you. And that's different than somebody who has PTSD, right? Because really, I mean, we, we started to touch on this and I do, want, I, do want to, I do want to explore that with the two of you. And I, and, and I certainly don't want to be disrespectful to the people who have been in war zones and who have PTSD from, from being in war zones. But at the same time, I do believe that if you have Lyme disease, it's very likely you have PTSD as well. It's a different trigger. It's a different different basis. So if if that is true, and, and and I'd like both of you to react to that as people who have been on this journey, if you believe that you had PTSD, do you think that anybody even recognized it? Were you offered any tools, any treatment? Because if you have PTSD and you're now in that loop and you're in fight or flight and you can't get out of it, you can't get out of it, you can't get out of it, you know what's happening, right? You know that you know that you're not reading your body signals. You know that your immune system is being compromised, and you know that that you can't heal, right? So, you know, we, we have to deal with that piece. And, and, and um, I think there are, there's a great deal of research finally going forward that has been suppressed for decades uh, about the, you know, the positive impact that, um, that so many of these plant medicines is having on, 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 on people who have PTSD and, and people who are, you know, whose who's, who's healing is being impaired by, uh, by this neurological symptom. I want to go back a little bit to the um, microdosing, you know, things like that. 
I would just urge people to really do research. I know multiple people in real life who have done ayahuasca. I know someone who did the frog venom in real life. It completely fried her brain. She did not know she had Lyme prior, but it, I mean, almost put her in a vegetative state. So I'm not saying do it. I'm not saying don't do it. I would utilize caution and do a lot of research. If I had done it in the state I was in at the beginning, my body, I would have like, it would have destroyed me because my body wouldn't have been able to handle that excessive purge that comes with it. But I know a lot of people that do microdosing as far as like PTSD, anxiety, things of that nature that could be more gentle on the body. So I would just say research to see, like Chrissy said, what you feel intuitively best based on where your body's at. Could your body handle certain things you know, certain ayahuasca ceremonies, that sort of thing. And I feel like if you do that, and if you're able to listen to yourself more intuitively and sit with it for a while versus make a rash decision, which can be hard when you're in that state, you'll know if it's right or not. And like Chrissy said, I've taught, I've, you know, asked people about ayahuasca because I'm curious, I've considered doing it. I don't feel that it's something for me at this point. Um, but then with the PTSD, yes, I very much had PTSD from Lyme and some things like I still have, um, nightlights around our house from my intense anxiety. When I would sleep, I would have sleep paralysis. I would have very intrusive thoughts, very intrusive dreams that I was being honestly murdered every night in my dream. And then I'd wake up and I couldn't move and scream. So yes, there's a PTSD component that I think a lot of people may deal with. They may not recognize it. Did anyone mention it to me? No, I learned about it more through the Lyme community. So let's let's be really careful here, right? Because you know, one of the things that that I'm concerned about when we use terms like microdosing, or we use terms, you know, that that you know, that I think you very very powerfully outlined, actually, about uh, you know using using different tools. You know, I, I certainly think everyone should be cautious about using any tool except within the confines of a well-trained medical professional, right? I think where we get ourselves in trouble in this community with all due respect, and, uh, and I hope this doesn't sound judgy in any way, shape or form, but I think where we get ourselves in trouble is we lose faith in a practitioner, we then lose faith in the system, and then we go out and we're just doing all kinds of things on our own without really having the proper constraints put in place for us when we're going on this treatment protocol. And that's why it's so important for us to interview people quite frankly, like the two of you, um, and, and and Christy in particular is our guest, Ashley, who is a well-trained, traditionally trained medical professional, right? I feel very confident if I'm working with a well-trained medical professional who's been on the journey and has the proper constraints to use the different treatment protocols in this, you know, in partnership with that person. When we step out of the system and we're doing all kinds of things on our own and we're listening to things that, you know, that we're seeing on social media, that's where the real risks begin to surface. And that's where things like people getting their brains fried is, is a greater risk, right? I would never advocate for people using, you know, a psychedelic outside of the confines of a well-trained psychologist who knows how, or psychiatrist who knows how to administer that tool and 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 help you to evaluate whether or not that's going to be helpful at whatever stage you're at in um, in your training. So I'm certainly not ad, ad, uh, advocating for that. And I am really anxious when I hear about people in the community microdosing with different types of psychedelics. I don't think microdosing is probably the best tool, right? I think there might be other ways of doing that. Again, within the parameters of working with a well-trained medical professional. 
Yes. And this person did. So I'm not saying do it or don't do it. It's just more, you know, do your research. Like you said, with that profession you're working with, know their background, you know, kind of gauge that because that's the hard thing is, you know, this person was under care of a trained medical professional and it didn't go well, you know, I'm not saying go and do these things on your own. Do not recommend that. Or I also don't recommend trying to treat yourself. I did that for years. Didn't work very well. Please don't do that. Right. And, and it's part of the reason why. And let's so let's take the next step to the to the to the transformation, Christy, and your transformation. Talk to us about how this uh, this journey has been beautiful for you. How what have you learned about yourself? What have you learned about your purpose? And how are you taking this new understanding of who you are and your purpose into uh, into making the world a better place and helping people who are trying to overcome the suffering caused by Lyme disease? Oh, yes, I it has made me much more aware of people and their symptoms. A lot of my friends have contacted me. I have a dear friend, Sarah. She is Sarah J. McKee on Instagram. She has a beautiful story um, about how she is treating and actually went off of her medication for this anxiety and depression. She has tested positive for Babesia um, and is treating parasites as well parallel with that. And she got, we were able to get her off her antidepressants. However, a few months later, she, she just, she fell apart and she has expressed just the other day on Instagram, how she went back on meds and that is, that is okay. But just the ability to share on social media that it's not going to be a linear, a straight line of, of healing. There is some ups and downs and, most of my clients, I've actually, we've worked with their doctors and have had the ability to get off medication, which is huge. And they're using everyday modalities to help them feel better. And it's like Ashley and I, how we were very rigid at the beginning. I've taken a gentler approach with my clients of do what feels right on this list that day. And then what happens is the most beautiful thing, in my opinion, Richard, is it trickles down to their whole family. So these kids are using red light. These kids are using castor oil packs. They're rebounding. They're going barefoot in the grass. And that is what we are making the generations behind us, you know, that intuitive with themselves and being able to express their feelings and how they're feeling physically. And so hopefully, like you said, in, you know, a few minutes ago about when you go into the doctor, I hope Penelope can express in those 10 minutes, you know, what is going on and hopefully it'll lead to whatever she needs that day. Um, so it has just transformed me and the ability to heal more on a preventative level than what I was in the ER, but then being able to see that transpire into whole family units, which is just so special to me. That is beautiful. That is really cool. So let's let's talk about one more thing before we let Ashley ask Chrissy the final question of the podcast. Let's talk about let's talk about teams and tools, right? We we spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about the different tools people want to consider. And we debated some of those already here um, a moment ago. But let's talk about teams and how you need to build a team of professionals who are going to work with you. And I'd like each of you to talk to me more about where the, where the, the niche is for coaching and why coaching is so important when you're going on a Lyme disease journey. You want me to go first, Ash? Sure. 
Um, so for, do you mean coaching as in professionals or as in community support as well? I mean professionals. Okay. So for coaching with professionals, I, like Ashley said, it is extremely important to make sure one, I always say to my clients, if I, if I don't feel like the right fit for you, that's okay. That does not hurt my feelings. I want you to find the best fit for your needs and let me help guide you. So there are people that come to me. I'm like, you know, I think Dr. Irestone would be best for you. Or here is, here's Limestop. Here's something else to look into. Um, and then as for, I, I do ask every single one of my clients how they're emotionally being supported. Are you seeing a therapist? What do you do for your emotional well-being? And if they don't have any references, um, my sister's actually a licensed therapist. Um, she's amazing. She, she has a holistic certification as well. So I refer them to her, or if that doesn't sound like a good fit, I have a few more people. Um, and then once again, the QNRT therapy. But you ultimately, I can name all of these people, but if they don't feel good to you intuitively, go to someone else. I know that that can be time and money as well, but you're not going to get the, the same outcome if it emotionally and spiritually and energetically doesn't feel right. So I would just, if it doesn't feel right, go with someone else. I guess that would be my biggest looking back <laughs> with, yeah, my biggest downfall, I guess would have and, and she was great. The naturopathic Lyme doctor, she was great, but it just fell off. And I didn't listen to that. And I wish, I wish I would have, but that's part of the learning with, with all of this, any kind of chronic disease, lots of learning. Give, give me your construct for coaching and what it is that the coaches can do and why it's important to have a coach, you know, in, in the athletic arena, um, we're, we're comfortable with coaching, right? Um, and uh, I, I use the example of my children. My, my, my daughters were nationally ranked cheerleaders and they were both on teams that had won the national cheerleading championships, right? And their coach had a strength and conditioning coach and there was a nutrition coach and there was a choreographer and there was, you know, they had all these other coaches that were a part of the larger, uh, um, larger experience that they had, which is why they were so successful because they put together a whole um, group of coaching. Um, but we don't always feel comfortable with that in the medical community. And, and I've, you know, I've confessed to some of our guests in the beginning of our, our work here at Tick Boot Camp. Like when I heard about all these health coaches, I've raised about like, what the hell is a health coach? Why would you want a health coach? And now I see how valuable health coaching is using the athletic coach as, as the metaphor and the successes that people have with that. But, you know, especially when you have a, a system that's designed around acute care, you need to have someone to help you through this process. When you have brain fog, when you're not feeling well, and you don't have the familiar support, when people don't understand, coaching is vital. I went from, I'm 180 degrees on coaching now, now that I've had 300 podcasts under my belt. It's vital and necessary to heal on this journey. I'd like your opinion about that, Ashley, and, and what the different coaching options are and why, for example, someone might want to work with you within the confines of, 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 uh, of the nutritional coaching. So along those lines, like 
even with Christy and I, I don't recommend, even if you are a practitioner like ourselves, I don't recommend you try to treat yourself for that very reason. Like I will come to her and I have someone treating me currently. Um, but I will go to her with questions because when you are in that state of brain fog or you don't feel well, you need that outside source or opinion, someone who could look at it from a different lens, someone who will help bring up things you may forget. Cause sometimes I'll text her for things and she'll, you know, respond with something. And I'm like, Oh yeah. Why didn't I think of that? I know that tool. I know all about that, but I wasn't in a space for myself to utilize that. It's much easier to help support someone looking outside versus you internally. So to have someone who has all those, you know, tools, like Christy said, all those other practitioners, if you don't feel that you can do that certain area, like for me, I know that as a root cause practitioner, I'm going to look at the diagnosis or the label and think of all the different facets that came together that helped this come to the surface. Me, I know emotions are a huge component, but I don't specialize in that where I know Christy does, and she does that very well. So someone who has that tool as a coach can say, okay, what do you think about this area? Do you feel it's missing? Would you like recommendations for emotional support like MBSR, QNRT? That way you're giving, helping them with ideas or tools and letting them then decide, like Christy said, what they feel aligned with. So I could provide multiple different areas of, okay, here's emotional um, healing options. Do you feel, you know, aligned with any of them? Would you like more options? Or let's look at the nutrition portion. You know, how, how are, how is that going? Do you need recipe help? You know, that sort of thing. Or let's look at all the tools you utilize. Do you feel overwhelmed? Are you doing too many things? That sort of thing to kind of step back, look at the whole picture and help guide them or ask them questions that they may not be in a state to think about. You know, I wasn't in a state to think about all the things I was doing. I just thought I had to do them. I can do this well, and it's going to help me heal when it did, but I was burning myself out. So if, you know, if I would have had someone kind of guide me and say, do you find those things helpful? Do they cause extra stress? Do they take a lot of extra time? That sort of thing to kind of help me pause and look at it and say, oh, wow, I didn't think of that. Okay, so let's talk about the Tick Bootcamp coaching framework that we're going to come up with together, the three of us. So I think the first thing that, that I would think we'd want to recommend to someone when they were choosing a coach is they want someone who had been on the journey that they're on, right? So if you have Lyme disease, you really want somebody who's been on the Lyme disease journey because they understand what the experience is like, right? So step one, somebody that's been on the journey and has already been to the place you want to be. Step two, I think we need somebody who has a Rolodex, somebody who has been through the experience and tried the different uh, protocols so that maybe while you're on your journey of making decisions about what you're pivoting to, because we know you're going to have to pivot, it's not one treatment, it's going to be a number of different treatments. And we know Ashley got all upset when, you know, when Lime Stop wasn't it for her, she had to go and take some other steps, right? It's not one treatment. So we're going to have to pivot. So we have somebody who has a Rolodex and has some experience with it, referring each other, for example, to each other or to other people, right? I have, I, I'm, I'm struggling with my, with my nutritional piece, which is an important foundation for me to heal. Well, Ashley's probably the best person for that, right? So let's make sure that, you know, and we, so we have a Rolodex. Third thing, we want accountability, right? We want somebody who's going to help us to be accountable to the steps that we have to take, but not be too hard on ourselves. Show ourselves some grace, you know, so they're not crazy the way you two were, where I've got to do this today and show no grace, right? So we have this accountability, but on both sides, both grace and doing the things that you said you were going to do. And then the fourth thing from my notes from the conversation that you two brilliantly just had was that you want to make sure that you have people who are supporting you 
when your intuition is telling you something, to read your own signals and to trust your own signals. So those are the four things that you two just brilliantly discussed that I've just outlined. Is there anything else that I should add to the Ashley Christie coaching framework? What do you have, Christy? I no, I think that was brilliant. Um, well, it's yours. I just, I just, I just take notes, so I can't take any credit for the brilliance. I just, I just summarize what you two brilliantly said. Um, yeah, no, I think that's pretty spot on. And just like I, like I've said, listen to that intuition, and there, and know that there are going to be a lot of people. That are going that you're going to need to help guide you. Um, I mean, all the so you people need, you're going to need a lot of people on your team at different times. You're going to have to pivot from one professional to another professional, right? So you'll need a lot of people, not all at the same time, and you'll need a lot of tools. And you need somebody to help you screen through all these teams and tools. And it's not going to be your doctor who has 15 minutes to spend with you, right, coaches? Absolutely. And just know that there are ups and downs and that, you know, I wish someone would explain to me, this is not necessarily a quick fix. And I wish someone would have shared with me that a lot of people are not going to agree with the way I chose to go about this route. And thank goodness, I'm pretty stubborn in nature. And at the beginning, it was hurtful that I knew a lot of people didn't necessarily trust me and they thought I had to do antibiotics. But I stuck with my gut and, you know, it's okay that you are going to encounter people that aren't going to agree with what you're doing, but trust yourself and their feelings are theirs. Try not as hard as you can. I know it's hard not to let their thoughts or maybe negative feelings or words impact you. And you can set a boundary and just say, I've really looked into this and this is a route I've chosen to go. I, you know, ask that you kindly don't share those negative feelings with me. I wish I would have known that I could set those boundaries. And it's okay. You know, Christy has really helped me with that of like setting those boundaries and just saying, you know, things in a kind manner so that I can focus on myself and not take a lot of extra noise in. Okay. So on the support piece of the Christy Ashley coaching framework, we're adding not only support intuition, but also social support to make sure that you are working with people who are going to serve you and to recognize that if somebody is going to be triggering you, that it's okay for you to set some limitations on the way that you're going to interact with those other people. Mm -hmm. Yep. If you can kindly do it and, you know, then those that are meant to stay in your world and your bubble, they, they will understand it. And, you know, and if that other person responds out of anger or negativity and they get triggered, that's their journey. And it's okay. If you stated it kindly, it's not your fault with how they respond. All right. So now, Ashley, you get to ask Christy the final question of the episode. What episode are we on, Ashley? Two, I'm sorry, 332 of the Tick Bootcamp yes. podcast. So, and, and I know this is kind of a general one, and I'm sure it's similar to with all that you know, Christy, and this is hard because everyone's bio individual, with all that you know and all the misinformation that's out there, is there one or two things that you want to share with? you know, people as far as something that you would have done differently or something you wish just people know in general or red flags that you see out in the public of like, I wish I would have known that that red flag meant this, or I wish I would have known that I can, that I hire and fire doctors that I don't have to stick with someone. Is there one or two things that kind of stand out to you from all that you know, whether that's how they should treat, how they should, you know, look at their diagnosis 
Is there anything that stands out that you wish you would have known earlier that you know now? And I know that's a very broad question. So I apologize for hitting you with a bomb. No, I would say definitely something that's very heavy on my heart would be mamas who are trying to become mamas and they're unaware that some of their symptoms are actually Lyme and that they can pass it on in utero, which then leads to, which can, not always, can lead to lots of physical and emotional symptoms in their kids, which we discussed earlier, then can be misdiagnosed and, and years years of unfortunate events for these kids. Um, so that one's really near and dear to my heart. As for treatment wise, I once again, really stress upon listening to yourself and which avenue sounds best for you. And if you try it and it doesn't feel right or that it's not working, like everyone said the herbs would work for me, but it, it didn't. So just being mindful and open-minded and to then look elsewhere. And this is where, you know, having that supportive team of, of healers can really be beneficial to, to someone that has Lyme. Um, And then just make sure you have like a great friend like you, but I'm so supportive, which who is so supportive. And I cannot thank you enough to be on this journey with me. Here we go. You made me cry earlier, so we're we're even now. <laughs> yeah. All right. So when when we cry for a third time on the podcast, we know it's time to wind down. So I want to thank you both, Ashley and Chrissy, for being so brilliant on this podcast. I know folks are going to love this, and I know folks are going to want to get in touch with both of you and work with you on their journey. So again, thank you so much for sharing so much with uh, our community here at Take Boot Camp. Thank you. We appreciate it, or I do. I shouldn't speak for you. Sorry, Christy. <laughs> No, I appreciate what you're doing for, yeah, the community as a whole. And I am just so happy to be a part of of your journey in this podcast. And I'm forever grateful. And I can't wait to hear how it spirals into the families and how it trickles down. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp podcast interview with Christy Kusky. To connect with Christy, you may visit her Instagram handle, Christy underscore Kusky underscore wellness. And I will spell that for you. K-R-I-S-T-I underscore K-U-S-S-K-E underscore wellness. That also has a link to her website as well. And lastly, we want to thank you, the podcast listeners, the community. We appreciate your sharing the podcast, all of your comments. And we ask that if you have a second, if you could leave an honest review on Apple, Spotify, or Google. And thank you again for your time in listening to this podcast.